listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and it's Friday morning on April 3rd, 2020, here in Seoul. Joining me via Skype from Wellington, New Zealand, is my guest today, Stephen Epstein, to talk about North Korean representations in South Korean media, amongst other things. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for joining me. Sure thing. Great to be here at last on NK News. <laughs> at last. Yes, that's right. Everyone's been waiting. Uh, Stephen Epstein is Associate Professor of Asian Studies at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, where he directs the Asian Languages and Cultures Program. His research and publications focus on contemporary Korean society, literature, and popular culture. He's also co-produced two documentaries on the Korean underground music scene with Timothy Tangalini, our nation, a Korean pop rock community from a uh, punk rock community, 2001. Punk rock, yes. Punk rock, yep. Us and Them, <laughs> Korean indie rock in a K pop world, 2014, which is how we first met in 2001. Uh, apart from that, uh, and since then, he's been an old friend of mine, and he's also fed my cat while I was away uh, on a uh, anniversary trip. So it's, it's say hello to Chino as well, and Jimmy. <laughs> I will do. It's great to have you on. So let's get into it. This theme of representations of North Korea within South Korea is something you've been following for many years, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in March 2009, you published an academic paper in the Asia Pacific Journal called "The Axis of Vaudeville." Images of North Korea in South Korean pop culture. Let's look at some of the questions that you asked and answered in that paper briefly before moving on to some of your more recent work that you've done. Okay. So how did the South Korean understanding of what it means to be or to have been a citizen of the DPRK evolve during the decade of the 2000s that some people like to call the noughties? Okay, so in that article, one of the things that I was looking at, because it had struck me that there had been a definite change when the sunshine policy came into play. Uh, in 1998 and, with Kim Dae-jung. Yeah, and after the summit, that instead of North Korea being represented either as a place where evil people come from or where the citizens are completely downtrodden. You, you started, and especially like around 2003, having uh, North, P North Korea being used in, in different modes, like almost comic modes. And there was a, a trio of rom-coms that came out in 2003 that had matches between uh, North Koreans and South Koreans. And it seemed to be allowing an opening of the way that North Korea could be considered in South Korean uh, popular culture. And so the argument that I was making is that if you are freer to not see uh, North Korea as the evil part of the self, as there is an opening that new modes of representation are becoming available. And so that's really what I was focusing on in that particular piece. And I was also looking at the um, use, especially in the 2000s, of the very familiar Nam Nam Bunya mm. trope, that is Southern man, uh, Northern woman. And it was really striking to see a, an overall feminization of North Korea in the popular imagination in comparison to a masculinization of South Korea. And that was going on in, co in conjunction with what I think was also a really notable feature of popular discourse in the 2000s, a general feminization of Asia with other shows like Love in Asia, as you started to have more and more international marriages mm -hmm. that up, I would say up through the end of the 20th century because of 
the Japanese colonial period and having the U.S. come in, that the image of the foreign was represented by an invading male and a rape was often the master trope of Korean film and literature, that a Korean woman representing the nation is raped by a foreigner. But then over the 2000s, there was this real striking shift in the image of the foreign going from uh, male to female. And I think that was just in response to a lot of social trends that were going on. And that played itself in, in views of Asia, less developed Asia more broadly, and also with North Korea. To what extent is North Korea seen as part of the foreign by South Koreans? Okay, so that's a, a really good question. And I, I think that's one of the other things that I was also addressing in that question is that at a larger level, although people within South Korea want to imagine that with their Northern brethren, they are the same, that uh, the nation is one, that there is Dong Song, that there is a homogeneity. And as I've heard you yourself say that you, the idea you get together, a few minutes, sit down, have a glass of soju together, shot of soju, and you discover that you're really the same. But increasingly, there is awareness that, in fact, there has been so much divergence over the last 70 years that it may be more and more appropriate simply to think of uh, North Koreans as another country. And in the Axis of Vaudeville piece, I sort of, my, in my conclusion, talk about how in some ways you could almost think of North Koreans as, I don't know, diaspora South Koreans in a, a kind of a weird way, and how there are running jokes or, or tropes within these some of the texts where North Koreans are confused with Chosunjok, with ethnic uh, Koreans from China. With Chosunjok, it's like their Koreanness is not questioned, but their South Koreanness is very much questioned is one of the things that I, I was um, speaking to there. You're, in your paper also, you're particularly interested in the way that uh, modern South Korean films feature North Korean spies and the way in which they represent North Koreans as compared to the spies of long-ago movies. Could you talk a bit about that and how you explored the spies theme in your paper? Okay, so oh, <laughs> um, I've got a, something that is in the pipes at the, the moment, which hasn't, hasn't been printed yet, but I, I've been looking closely also that in the earlier 2000s that you have this really sudden and striking trend of North Korean spies, and this is it really reached peak in about 2013, being represented in these kind of positive ways. They became heroes. It just was really, I found, weird. You know, what does it mean? And it, I wasn't the only person that it struck. There were uh, journalists who were writing about it. Other academics were, were noticing this as well, that suddenly you had um, some North Korean spies being played by top South Korean stars, often um, Minam, Minam, you know, really good-looking top male stars, and they were present in the South, and they were on a mission of some sort. And in those films, what was regularly taking place is that their enemy was another North Korean. Mm. And so there was a good North Korean and a bad North Korean. And I was sort of arguing that what you get in a, 
I, I reference some uh, theories of psychology and the way that psychology plays itself out in, in Greek myth as well, where psychoanalytic views of Greek myths say that, for example, the Oedipus myth, where you have Jocasta, uh, the mother figure, and then the Sphinx, another female figure, that because uh, as children, you come to grips and you understand that your mother, whom you love and adore, is both this tyrannical figure who blocks all your wants and, and needs. And so that the way that the human mind deals with this, the mythical mind, is to decompose that single figure into two opposing figures. Okay, that's sort of what's going on. And I think a similar thing is happening with the larger South Korean overall imagination of North Korea. And it is being represented like, okay, we're having more contact over the course of the 21st century, and we recognize that there are good North Koreans. We see that there are all the Talbukja, uh, that there's experience of um, North Koreans, and they see them on TV and think, oh, these are cool people. They belong with us. They are the, you know, there is that homogeneity that we experience. But at the same time, it's like, oh, we know that we have the Kim regime, that there is evil there. And so that the way we are going to deal with this in popular literature or in popular film discourse is to split them into two competing characters. So, And then they come into the South and they fight it out amongst themselves. And one of the striking thing about the set of films is in almost every case at the end, there's a shootout and it's a face-to-face -face instantiation where the good North Korean and the bad North Korean are looking right at each other with guns pointed at each other simul simultaneously. And often, where does South Korea fit into this? The good North Korean will often form an uneasy relationship with somebody from the NIS, the National Intelligence Service, uh. who is often played by another South Korean star, but an older male star. So there's like an older brother, younger brother relationship, sort of a buddy film yeah, dynamic. Buddy that film, yeah. yeah, that there's a bit of that that is occurring. But the South Korean winds up being a bystander. The, the, the good Korean and the North Korean and the bad North Korean have to settle things ultimately between between themselves. And it's allowing South Korea to take a step back and sort of recognizing that the internal dynamics of North Korea belong to a place apart. That's at least the argument that I'm trying to make and trying to build evidence for that. Now, you also wrote in that, uh, that paper back in 2009 that South Korean cultural productions have often treated the North in modes that draw on comedy, irony, or farce in preference to more straightforward <laughs> cultural re uh, readings, and, and that that was a, a development that you saw happening, as you said, since the, the Sunshine Policy. Um, could you talk a little bit about the use of irony to, to talk about North Korea in the, you, that you saw in the 2000s? So, well, these comic and farcical modes show up in the, that trio of um, rom-coms that I mentioned. I start out that piece with a close analysis of a music video by the Dalel Makdan, who were a quintet of uh, top who were performing, and they were sort of like a girl group. This was before 
even before uh, Sonia, she did, before Girls' Generation, I think the Wonder Girls may have just started, like around 2006. So K-pop, that whole industry had not really gone forward uh, to where anything like the extent to where it is today. And so they had a couple of videos. One was a song called Machengi. Um, so I don't know, sharp dressed man, you know, something, something like that, a you know, fashionable guy. And that particular music video, and people can look it up on, on YouTube, was just kind of, it was funny and weird. And what it was doing was it had two sequences that were referencing the films JSA and then another one, Welcome to Tolmacol. Uh, yeah, and it was really difficult to figure out what was going on because of the way they were interspersing in a postmodern way references to those films where you had these uh, the, the group playing there in Hanbok and it's like North Korean soldiers and South Korean soldiers facing each other across the dividing line at Panmunjom, mm. and which is re- looking a lot like the uh, the, the soldiers in JSA, and they seem like they're getting angry at each other. But then there's another cut where they're all dancing together and trying to show off for the the women and win their affections. Like one guy drops to the ground and is doing push-ups, and like the scene, it. As it goes into the chorus, there's like a hey, and what happens in that hey, it references the scene in JSA where there's the 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 um, one of the characters is saved, I think, by Song Gang Ho, um, who stepped on a landmine or a grenade or something like that. But in in this case, in the music video, it blows up. But you know, it's a music video, so it blows up, but nobody's harmed, uh-huh. <laughs> and. So I guess when I think of irony in the way that it's playing all of this, it's just throwing things up for amusement, for detached laughter, for this postmodern pastiche where people are putting together all of these pop culture elements and the music, too. What you get is they're playing kind of trot type style and they have accordion and all these women had trained within North Korea as musicians. So it has this old fashioned, slightly northern flavor that is being brought into this kind of wacky South Korean pop culture, pop music video. Ah. Oh, I must have missed that video somehow. We will uh, have to share that link on the uh, the yeah. page with this episode. But tell us why why do you think that turn of of sort of being able to treat North Korea in a more postmodern, in a lighthearted way? Why do you think that is important? Oh well, I think it's important because it just shows a shift in the way that people were able to think of North Korea. That for fifty years, you know, implacable enemy a lot of hatred. I think of what my own partner tells me, who is she she having grown up in um, South Korea during the Park Chung-hee years, that until she was about eight years old, she genuinely thought that Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il had horns because they were told there was the the, the, the day, the anti-communism day, and they had to draw these figures. And just that, that is what people had grown up with. And, and you had this brief period, people have sort of forgotten about it, where there was like Kim Kim Jong-il fandom in South Korea. He became like a, a really, really popular 
I think he did such a great job in hosting Kim Dae-jung and did all the proper filial displays of respect and and showed that he had a sense of humor. So suddenly people were able to think of North Korea in a different way. And you have to remember the other important thing that was going on in the early 2000s is that was when the Hyundai Asan trips were going up to Kumgangsan and later a little bit later on to Kaesong. And a lot of people were going and getting into North Korea. And it was... I think a really special time and experience for a lot of people, really moving. Mm. Um, I know plenty of people who said that when Kim Dae-jung stepped out on the tarmac um, to meet and met Kim Jong-un, you know, that they were crying, you know, just this incredible upsurge of emotion. And it it just enabled a different way for people to take on images of, of North Korea. And that just translated into popular culture in different ways. Now, since that paper came out uh, in 2009, uh, the uh, the Axis of Vaudeville, we'll have to provide a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, you've co-written three papers, as you briefly mentioned, with Chris Green, uh, our friend and colleague who's been on this yeah. podcast before. Uh, what made you decide to co-write them together? Oh, well, uh, pretty. Chris and I have also known each other for a long time. I don't remember the initial impetus to write about now on my way to meet you. We were just talking about it. I think maybe Chris just said, and we were just like, oh, it'd be good to write about it. And then it was like, hey, yeah, hey, kids, let's, (laughs) let's do this. And, you know, a shout out to Chris. I really enjoy working with him. He's, um, you know, really onto it. And Chris knows a lot. He knows a hell of a lot more about what's going on with North Korea than I do. I, I certainly have to recognize that. And I've got a different training. More, I've got more coming from the media studies, pop, pop culture sort of side. Um, but because it, I think it was a really good co- collaboration that has led to further work together. Um, but I, I think we bring to bear two yeah, different um, areas of expertise that, that come together in, mm. our, our, in our work on, on South Korean representations of North Korea. Could you walk us th- through a little bit of that collaborative process of writing an academic paper where, as you said, both of you have different trainings and different backgrounds and mm. different mm. areas of interest, and you're both living in two different countries. You're in New Zealand. He's now yep. in the Netherlands. He was then in South Korea. Uh, how did that work? And, and did you agree on, on everything that went into the papers? Oh, God. <laughs> um and I, I would also say one of the things I really like about working with Chris is we often disagree a little bit. You know, we we push each other, and I, I think that's a produ- very productive process. The the simple answer is we're just batting drafts, word MS word drafts back and forth constantly, and putting in comments, editing each other, yeah, continually trying to push things forward. Um, often getting brainstorms to fill in little bits and pieces and the, the, the piece. Uh, but each time they've sort of slowly evolved. Sometimes we agree on particular areas that we'll focus on uh, a bit more than the other. For example, in writing on what we'll get to, like Crash Landing on You, Chris was particularly interested in res- political responses within South Korea to to what had happened and i was doing more of the closer analysis of some of what was occurring in the the drama 
That's great. Now, your fir- the first paper that you co-wrote, published in late 2013, was called Now On My Way To Meet Who? South mm. Korean Television, North Korean Refugees and the Dilemmas of Representation. Give our listeners, if you would, just the Twitter summary to set it up as background. Okay, uh, so the Now On My Way To Meet Who? The question mark is because what we perceived in that show was a certain level of schizophrenia. And uh, briefly, it has a lot of female tabukja, uh, defectors, refugees, resettlers, whatever, however you want to translate that in, in English, in a talk show format, and um, a lot of North Korean male minor celebrities engage with them, and there's flirtation and discussion of life in, in North Korea. But then they, the show would end with a Talbuk Satori, their story of escape from uh, North Korea. And the schizophrenia that, that Chris and I point to is the show kind of lurches between wanting to say that, oh, look, you know, we really are just the same. There's this Dongjie song that I had referred to before. It winds up othering them, partly for the purposes of television, to make it entertaining. You know, you wouldn't watch if it, if it was just everything was exactly the same, to make it intriguing. And there may also be coming out on a conservative channel, a, an ultimate political subtext there, to work towards changing what is what is happening. But there's, yes, we are the same, we're totally different, that is going on. Um, and Uni Hong's book, The Birth of Korean Cool, which is about the Korean wave, it's, a, it's I, I don't agree with her academic analysis uh, or the that, that she gives, but she's a very entertaining writer and I laughed out loud several times during the book, but one of the, was her description of the show is that it made you feel like you were channel surfing between the Lawrence Welk show, the Miss Universe pageant, and Schindler's List. (laughs) (laughs) It it does get at that sense of schizophrenia that you're just like, what am I watching? Or, you know, the overall effect is quite... Uh, interesting. Yes. To what extent? Like, uh, this show, uh, Iman Gub. Uh, by the way, is it still made now, or is it just shown in repeat on TV? I believe it's still on. Actually, that podcast, that BBC podcast that I just listened to a couple days ago, it the indication from that was that it's still going. I haven't seen it in uh, quite a while, but it, it should be, I believe. Do you remember back in the mid-2000s, there was a show, I think it may have been a KBS program, called Minyo de Resuda, which was uh, uh, a, a tra- attractive foreign women talking mm-hmm. to a small panel of Korean men. To what extent is Iman Gup kind of a remake or a continuation of that show, but with North Korean women instead of foreign women? Well, I certainly see that the seeds for Imangap came out of Misuda. We addressed that in the article. And one of the most obvious pointers to that is that the host, uh, Nam Hisok, it's the same MC for both shows. So there's some really very obvious and clear continuity. And so the the earlier show had had yeah foreign attractive young foreign women who spoke Korean with varying degrees of fluency, and then we just move it to intriguingly foreign women with obviously very you know fully fluent native native, but perhaps with a different accent and right. slightly different usages yeah. Now, uh, tell us about then your second co-written paper, Revealing Voices, North Korean Males and the South Korean Landscape. What's the central thesis here? 
We're looking at the way representations of males have opened up in uh, South Korean pop culture over the, the course of the 2010s. And we look at more of the shows that feature Tabukja on TV, and like there's another one, the Moranbong Club, but there was also a, an EBS show, Dak Chon Singu, so like Good Friends, where it was trying to show high school kids or high school people. Um, and it brought together North Korean, uh, so Tabukja and with South Koreans, and was working. I think in very positive ways to try to, I guess there's the same idea of Dong uh, Song. in my view, uh, that that show did a really good job of that and tried to indicate like, hey, they may have had a slightly different upbringing, but they are belong in the national fabric. It's interesting, after that piece came out, I, another article came out, and I don't remember the authors, but they were referencing Chris and myself. It was interesting because our paper was in press, but it hadn't come out. And they were taking a very similar approach to that show, to what we had done with Imangap. And, and so they were more critical of the show and felt that it was creating these hierarchies. Ah, um, so it's, they're example, both the same and different at the same time. Yeah, and also that the North Korean men, it's interesting because you, I, I suppose it's the lens which you come to it personally, so that some of the episodes where the North Korean high school students, it's clear that they're slighter in stature, they, they often the uh, host would try to normalize the South Korean way of being, but I also felt that occasionally, as often happens in uh, Yenin, like variety shows, that people do contests and various sorts of things. And there's one where they're off for a weekend and they're doing certain traditional Korean um, skills like woodcutting or, or, and stuff like that. And the North Koreans, even though they're you know, slighter and shorter, they just totally blow away the the South Korean guys that they who look completely awkward, um, unathletic in comparison to these uh, the North Korean the Tabukja, and it shows that they've got their own skills and know how that they bring to bear. But it's referencing an older Korea at the same time, a more traditional Korea. But it's I felt that the show is valuing that within them. Yeah. Now, you also focus some attention on a young North Korean defector named Ipyong, who is a broadcast jockey on Africa. Yeah. Tell us what you found about him. He's And he's still um, very much doing his show, as we now have a lot of self-broadcast, um, micro-celebrity. Again, that's this BBC podcast that just came out. Um, looking at the ability now, one of the changes in South Korean and global media is that self-broadcast has allowed individuals to get their own voices heard much more easily. And what he's trying to do is, I think, to give positive images of North Korea and North Koreans and to help express himself for people to understand where he is coming from. But 
he's a, he's entertaining. He's a good storyteller. And what he draws upon, also, he certainly look at him. He doesn't look any different from a you know a trendy South Korean guy. He, by local standards, he's seen as really handsome, and he knows that, and he plays to that. And he refers to his fans like Nuna fans. He knows that like there are women who are in his fan base. And it's a way also self-broadcast to make money. You know, that's how he makes his living. And um, as with, for example, like some of the mukbang stars, these eating self-broadcast people make huge sums of money. And so he is doing something similar in just trying to get across his own viewpoint. There are fewer uh, young men or men who are doing that, but there are a few, quite a few women now. Some of them have several hundred thousand subscribers. And um, one, uh, Kang Nara, she's, she's become quite po- you know popular. Again, what uh, this self-broadcast has allowed is what we might call micro-celebrity. That yeah, there's a, a fair bit of that in a, a whole variety of different areas of interest that people might have. Yeah, and I guess to a certain extent they're able to control their own narrative, but also some of them, right. some of the, uh, it, it may be Kangnara that I'm thinking of. Some of them are produced together with. Uh, with Yonhap TV's um, unification yeah, Yontong, uh, team. Yeah, the Yontong channel. Yeah, in, in which case, on, there's a more yeah. of a collaborative process, so she's not completely in control. It's not like she just rolls up and says whatever right. she wants. There is a bit of a, a back and forth there, but it's much less uh, orchestrated than on, say, Iman Gap or, or the Misuda with the right. foreign women back in the 2000s, where yeah. the deliberate emphasis there is keep things bubbly and light, and then at the very end, you know, the last five minutes, throw in a heavy moment and then end the show. Yeah, so I, I imagine the ones who are more successful, you bring in professional, more professionals and a bigger crew really to help um, with the what you're doing for self-broadcast. In fact, at this very moment, even as we speak, um, Myung is watching uh, some self-broadcast news shows that she finds very, very that are very, very popular. And I, in fact, because I'm uh, Park Yun-sik from Crying Nut, she just yelled out, hey, he's on it today, April 3rd as we're recording. So yeah, this, this sort of thing and this media change. So obviously I'm sitting here in New Zealand, but you're getting stuff essentially live. Have you found any uh, Talbukja who are doing the mukbang, the the eating uh, TV shows? Uh, I'm not aware of any, although some of the Self-broadcast, obviously, they'll focus on food more. I wouldn't be surprised if you went and had a close look that there are like mukbang-type episodes in their larger framework. Now, you Mm -hmm. write in your conclusion to that paper, Revealing Voices, that, quote, despite opinion surveys that show decreased interest in reunification among South Koreans, the popular imagination often longs to engage with the North Koreans and assimilate suitable northerners, male and female, into local understandings of acceptable behavior and identity. End quote. Let's unpack that a little bit. Why do you think reunification holds less interest for young South Koreans? I think a, a lot of people are, are afraid of the economic consequences. Uh, definitely one of the changes that I've observed is it's gone from being a sacred cow that you couldn't touch. Everybody longed for it. It's just the way it was. And I think people of a certain age still feel that way, but 
people who've grown up with the idea that it's, uh, you know, a faraway place and uh, that is just going to make things difficult, especially as young people in South Korea face increasing difficulties in employment. And I suspect that over this decade, there may be, it'd be interesting to track this, maybe some people have, like people who are really into sort of the whole held Chosun discourse, if they believe that, you know, South Korea is a hell for young people, mm. that the stronger you feel that that is true, maybe the less likely you're going to want to see unification occur. You don't want to have additional competition for limited resources or your tax dollars or have more tax dollars to pay yeah. when you're already struggling to make ends meet. And you can't afford to buy you, – you think you're never going to buy a house. You can't get a car. You know, Maybe you're not even going to ever marry or have kids, whatever. And yet it seems surprising to me that at the same time, young people seem to be willing to engage with and assimilate Northerners. Uh, is that a, a, a strange juxtaposition? Do you mean uh, when uh, Talbukja arrive in that sense? Well, uh, or... I mean that, uh, like, as you said in your paper, there, on the one hand, young people are less interested in unification, but on the other hand, the popular imagination wants to engage with the North and, and, and assimilate suitable Northerners. It, I guess there are a couple of ways that I, I wouldn't surprise me if younger people are more open-minded in the sense that if there are and that maybe this is a contradiction in what I'm saying that individually, if you know a top of it's like, oh yeah, that person's cool. They can, they can come or are more likely to have friends who are foreign born and, and so on, but they don't want this large scale wholesale change to the social structure, I guess. Does this engagement help uh, North Korean resettlers or refugees overcome feelings of alienation? I, I would need to project here. I can't really speak for individual uh, North Koreans, but my sense, my gut sense is from what I see and read or the atmosphere from watching these self-broadcasts is that a lot more North Koreans are doing pretty well within South Korea, that they're making it, that they're assimilating, they're developing friends. And I think these sorts of shows do help in that process. But so you have those sorts of tabukja shows, but the engagement, some of it's an engagement of the imagination. So when you have, say, a group of teenagers who go to the theater and are seeing a film that stars like... Um, you know, Kim Soo-hyun, a big star, that a spy film where you imagine that this South, this North Korean is among you, it's pure fantasy. You know, it's kind of fun, but you don't treat it as real in any way. And I'm not sure that those forms of representation do a lot. Mm. They're want to be able to project onto North Korea the possibility that Yes, Kim Soo Hyun or, or Hyun Bin can be a, a North Korean and they're so, you know, handsome and cool, whatever. Now, uh, you and Chris have, have uh, co-written a third paper, which is coming out soon, called Crash Landing on You and North Korea, Representation and Reception in the Age of Global K-Dramas. And it's obviously about, amongst other things, that very popular mm. South Korean drama, Crash Landing on You, Korean title, Sarang e Bulshichuk. What do you find worthy of examination in that show? 
Oh, I, I think there's a lot that's uh, worthy to examine in, in that show. It's one of the things we say, as far as I can tell, it is probably the single most noteworthy, in-depth representation of life in North Korea that has ever been in a South Korean popular culture production. For one thing, just being a drama, right? The amount of time you have, 20 hours or whatever, in that 16 episodes, it'd be maybe even closer to 25, um, allows you to develop things in some detail. So for people who may not be aware, the basic premise is that you have a South Korean woman, she's a Chebal heiress, she's uh, paragliding and she gets blown into North Korea and she is found by the son of one of the highest people in the North Korea um, hierarchy who happens to be a soldier. He's on patrol near the DMZ and he winds up protecting her. And of course, this being a drama, they, they fall in love and it's a, an impossible love story. But much of it is set in North Korea. They had North Korean, um, they had Talbukja in as associate writers on the show. And they spoke to a lot of others uh, to try and get things right in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's a drama. We can't expect complete realism from it. But they are trying to represent a very wide swath of people in North Korea. So you have people in villages, you have Pyongyang elites, you have characters who are, you know, the hero, like played by Hyunbin, um, and you have wicked villains in there too. But then you have just a lot of sort of normal average people, minor characters who show up from episode to episode. And I, for me, as I think on the show now, it's a couple of sets of characters that really make the show. It's... Um, so Hyunbin, Lee Jung-hyuk, his four soldiers that are with him who are very well drawn and individuated. And then there are women in the village as well. And they have some very good actors uh, who are playing these characters who do North Korean accents. A lot of the top viewers are most interested in how well different people do the accents. That's one of the things they concern themselves with in authenticity and what they get right and maybe a little bit less right. But it's the sheer attention to detail and show that there are just all sorts of different people in in North Korea. So that in itself makes the show noteworthy. The other thing that makes it noteworthy is this show, it, well, it was it, it successful domestically, but it was simultaneously released on Netflix. And so it has also been a huge success, I would say, globally. I, I care... <laughs> You know, here in New Zealand, I, I've been stunned by the number of conversations I've had with students and students who say, oh, yeah, my social media, my media feed was all about that final episode. You know, this is local students. One is a, one of my Ph.D. students from Vietnam, and she's talking about people in Vietnam. Um, so one of the things that we, Chris and I do is take a look at all of the commentary and you see like the Google reviews. They come from India. They come from the Philippines, um, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, Spanish speaking countries. I'm assuming that it was subtitled 
I, I, that, it's, it's happened, but into English immediately, more or less, and also pretty quickly with Spanish and Indonesian, so the, being a really big market as well. I'm not sure about other jurisdictions, but at least those three languages, I'm pretty sure that you, you got that. One theme uh, in this paper is this concept of northern man, handsome man, which is uh, kind no, of yeah. to, to I want to look at that, but also to, to draw in your previous uh, trope of, uh, of Nam Nam Bunyo, right, the feminized yeah. North Korean. So could you talk a bit about that? Okay, well, this is in there's actually nothing in print yet where this is a coinage of mine that we've got this shift. Uh, from in between the 2000s and into the recent years from this well-worn nam nam bunya to what I'm calling like bunam minam. So like a northern man is a handsome man. And so wanting to see North Korean men as having the potential to be these leads and to see something attractive and romantic, slightly mysterious, but they are functioning as compelling figures in South Korean culture in the 2010s. That's pretty clear. Now, there's a paradox here because in almost all of these cases, they're being played by A-list South Korean stars. So there's a knowledge that, in fact, these aren't necessarily North Korean uh, men themselves. Although, as I, I noted, like with Lee Pyong, um, and a few others of these micro celebrities, there, there's attention to the handsomeness um, uh, the, of their good looks as well. But for the most part, the films and the drama are drawing on people like Hyunbin, okay? So the really top South Korean star. But I think this, and this is the harder part that I don't think I've fully articulated and what I'm still working on in my own thinking, is why is this? I think this has to do with some of the larger issues in gender conflict in South Korea at the moment and changes in media consumption that very much like with film audiences, there's been a shift to younger consumers and more female consumers, an ever larger part of the audience. So the film, the Kim Soo-hyun spy film, that was definitely targeting a teen female demographic. And dramas have a very gendered audience in both within South Korea and globally as well. So North Korean men, I think that allows for some romantic projection especially as within South Korea, one of the interesting things, I don't know if you've, you've seen some of the political uh, polling that in the previous election, it was clear like around uh, Park Geun-hye that support was very much generationally based, huge, huge splits between people in their 20s and people in their 70s in their support for Park Geun-hye. Now with Moon Jae-in, what is striking is there is a huge split like people in their 20s that is gender-based, like a majority of women. I, I'm not sure when the last time I saw something that looked at this, but it was like one survey I saw showed that 60% of women in their 20s were in support of Moon Jae-in, but it was only like 25% of men in their 20s. And I went, wow, you know, that's a huge gendered split that we're seeing. And there's clearly with... Um, me Too um, in Korea in the last few years, and just you can see it percolating of 
tension between young men and young women in, in uh, South Korea. And I've wondered, can we draw some sort of line between these representations of North Korean men and what is happening in um, gender conflict in, in, at a larger level? What are some other ways that representations of North Koreans on South Korean television have changed from when you wrote your paper in 2013 to, the, uh, to now? I, I suppose just thinking about Crash Landing on You, it's the, the depth, the fullness, I, and, but I'm, I'm referencing one particular text here, but it is, it is striking. I, I guess it's just the d- diversification that there are many, many more modes and ways to meet uh, with North Koreans. So you have these fictional representations and you also have plenty of genuine defector, so tabukja representation. So I think, and this is something else that Chris and I argue, is that now by 2020, and one of the reasons for the depth of the portrayal in Crash Landing on You is people know something about North Korea now. They're not going to go for any old, you know, fantasy bull that gets pushed their their way, that they ask penetrating questions and they're interested in the, the details. And um, there are plenty of people around that you can double check with and mm. say, hey, did they get that right? Hey, just in and terms I, of, uh, of, yeah. of the detail and depth that's, of, that you see in the portrayal in uh, Crash Landing on You, how is that challenged by or how does that challenge the national security law, which doesn't allow um, <laughs> you know, p- depictions of, uh, of the right. faces of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il and, and praise of the leader and that kind of thing? How did that work in the show? Well, uh, one of the things we do talk about, and in, in fact, it was when we first decided to write about it, was when the, what do they call it, the, the Christian Liberal Party, the Kido Chayudang um, or something like that, mm-hmm. that they wanted to um, sue the show for violating the national security law. The, the second episode in particular seemed to show... Uh, North Korea in a uh, more positive light. And so that was one of the issues that, that came came up. But I, I don't think it, by any means that the show was entirely positive. It was just giving a somewhat more complex portrayal of, of North Korea. And one of the things they do avoid is you can never see the faces of any of the Kims too clearly. You know they're there. You see the people with the badges, but you can never see and like the uh, portraits in the background when they're in a room. You, the portraits are there so that you know that they're there, but you can't actually see them very closely. Now, to yeah. what extent is Crash Landing on You a product of its time? I mean, uh, obviously, there's a lag mm. time in, uh, in in the the ideation. So the drama would have been envisioned in 2018, but came right. to the screens in late 2019 and early 2020. So you can imagine that when they f- first thought of the idea uh, at Mnet, that, uh, or so whatever the... the uh, TV network was, that that was a time when North-South Korean relations were improving, but by the time the TV show actually came on air, uh, we're back into a freeze again, and it seems almost a bit incongruous. Do you think the show's creators and producers were worried about that as it was going to air? That's a good question, whether the producers worried about that. Certainly what is happening, and I, I guess as I follow this for now, I don't know, 15 years or so, that different conditions produce different texts. 
So it starts up the plan. The planning begins in a hopeful moment. And now we're kind of back to, you know, business as usual, I suppose. Yes, that that would have an effect. And I, I think some of those spy films that I was talking about and one of the arguments that I, I make there, the like in the 2013, that's responding to the transition of power after the death of Kim Jong-il. And Kim Jong-un comes in and people are like, ooh, this is getting scary again. And things hadn't been good in the last couple of years before Kim Jong-il died as well. So there's this unsettling moment of transition. But I think that's kind of what made North Korea a theme, a really useful theme like you, you see these waves. Um, I've been co-editing a, a book with my colleague Rumi Sakamoto at, at Auckland on uh, popular culture and the transformation of Japan-Korea relations. And one of the chapters in there is arguing about why, in fact, in like 2015-16, there was a real turn towards looking at Japan. Again, it was like the big films were going back to the colonial period. It was moving away from North Korea as the big blockbuster stuff to making Japan the big blockbuster movies. And the argument that is made uh, there is why like collaboration becomes a real key interest. And I think it might have had to do with Pak Geun-hye's daughter of Pak Jung-hee in a troubled presidency at that point. You know, the so Korean popular South Korean popular culture responds to some of the larger issues that are kicking around but often this stuff is I'm not going to say subconscious but it's percolating under the surface it's not fully formed but it causes particular themes and topics to resonate more than they would otherwise Okay, now we're in our last five minutes now, so I'm going to ask you some, some rapid-fire questions. You have to sure. keep each answer to less than a minute. Okay. okay. First of all, to what extent do your own political leanings and worldviews and philosophical prisms influence your views on North Korea? Ah, great question. I don't think any of us can ever get away from our own views. I like to think of myself ultimately as an optimistic person, but with North Korea home, man, you just never know what's going to happen. I'll just leave it at that. Okay, <laughs> no, good answer. Uh, is it important to you that North Korea be seen and be treated as just another country? Is it important to me? Mm, I think South Korean popular culture can do whatever it wants. <laughs> and so, personally, I think it makes it a little bit more interesting, perhaps. Definitely it's more interesting than if it's just evil, for sure. Mm, okay. Uh, outside of cultural representations and media studies, do you think that North Korea is something that's, you know, as a country that it's truly unique, that it's something sui generis? Uh, yes, I do. It is not... There are normal people who live there who go about their lives, but there is no question in my mind that it is the most unusual place I have ever visited. And I've been to a lot of countries. I've been to some unusual places too. I thought, you know, Baluchistan, Quetta in Pakistan, or uh, parts of Vanuatu, Tana, they're, they're in their own thing. But North Korea is definitely its own place for sure. When did you last visit there? It's been a while now. I guess it was the trip to Kaesong. I was, it had been three times, so 2000, 2001 and 2008. So the two 
um, Hyundai trips and then in a dele- New Zealand delegation for about a week in Pyongyang in 2001. Do you believe that the uh, the optimism that was felt in 2018 took a certain kind of myopia or naivete to seriously believe with conviction? I mean, for example, there were people actually here in the streets of uh, Kwanghomun intersection preparing to greet Kim Jong-un with full honors into Seoul. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I, I believe it when I see it. It, it. Again, be optimistic. And again, anything can happen. And for all the incredible misery and tragedy that the uh, current president of the United States has unleashed upon the world is and, and is unleashing upon his people uh, right now because of his own incompetence, one of the only benefits I saw is that maybe there could be a break in the logjam between North and South because he was just coming, you know, a wild card, but it hasn't turned out to be. As an academic, last question here, what dream paper would you research and write if you had unfettered access to North Korean society from tomorrow for a period of six months? Oh, gosh, I would love to just do some anthropological field work if it were unfettered. You know, thinking about the work that I've done around music, it would be great to get a really good sense of youth culture and like what constitutes underground youth culture to the extent that it exists. What are some of the cool, what are the the really cool and kind of questioning kids in, um, well, not just Pyongyang, but all around doing like <laughs> that, that'd be really interesting. Really interesting. Actually, just to follow up on that one, do you think that uh, in time we'll hear of North Koreans who uh, secretly watched a crash landing on you in North Korea? Oh, at some point, sure. Uh, I don't know how long it'll be. It may not be that long next year. I, I suspect we'll we'll begin to get some sense of that. Uh, some of the defectors, though, um, the what's his name, Kang. Uh, the aquariums of Pyongyang. Oh, Gang but he Huan. thinks that yeah, he he thinks that the show wouldn't be so successful in in North Korea. Hmm. His view, uh, but he has a particular political framework. I'm sure that people in the North would be really interested just to see like, the the way that Tabukja seemed to be really interested. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? The, the North Korean state media did say something kind of obliquely referring the show, didn't it? Uh, something condemnatory. Mm-hmm. 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 They did. It was oblique. They condemned some productions. They didn't single it out by name, but it seemed to be in there. But of course, the the regime kind of has to, I would think. They're they're not going to be happy. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today, unfortunately. Thank you once again for joining me on the show, Stephen Epstein. And I will uh, try to put links to uh, the papers that I can and the videos uh, on the, uh, the show notes page. We look forward to having yeah, you on the show once again in the future. That, yeah, the, um, unfortunately, maybe this is a good excuse for me to contact the Asia-Pacific Journal because some of the links to videos on the axis of vaudeville are now broken and ah. need to be redone as well. But I could send the, the right ones to you to put on to. Please, that would be very handy. Page. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Stephen. Talk to you again soon. Great, great to talk to you, Jacko. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.